Hi, everybody. Hope you survived the post-election Thanksgiving. This week marks a year since Otherhood, the podcast, began. The whole time, I've been trying to finish the episode you're about to hear. It was supposed to be about the challenges of being an other within mainstream journalism. But the story kept changing during the presidential election. By calling out immigrants, Muslims, Mexicans, journalists, making fun of a handicapped reporter, making sexist jokes, and ridiculing political correctness, Donald Trump gradually made the ideas of diversity, inclusion, and facts themselves political issues. That raised problems for all journalists but particularly female or diverse journalists. I talked to dozens of them as I tried to understand how to continue to be a responsible reporter. This episode became a selection of those conversations. As journalists, we never want to be a part of the story. As journalists of color, we are a part of the story. I'll warn you in advance, there is no ending. Journalistically, this year was a journey into confusion. Just one thing became clear, that this is just the beginning. I'm Rupa Shinoy, and this is Otherhood. The first episode of Otherhood a year ago was me and Arun Roth, the former NPR Weekend Edition host, talking about Aziz Ansari's show Master of None and how it made us reflect on our own family immigrant experiences. It was an adjustment for me. My earlier years in journalism, working for places like the Associated Press, had made me a hard news reporter with self-imposed restrictions on expressing opinion. That wasn't what I thought I was doing with Otherhood, though. I didn't think that talking about my background or experiences was necessarily expressing opinion. Over the last few years, reporters have been encouraged to sound more casual, less detached, to maybe even put themselves in their stories. It seemed like that's what audiences wanted. So I was surprised after that first episode of Otherhood when other journalists asked me if I was worried the podcast would make me be seen as biased on immigration. A few months later, Keith Woods, NPR's VP for Diversity, was in our building, and I asked him what he thought. There will be people who see people of color, women, gays and lesbians, anybody who falls into the universe of folks who have had reason to advocate for themselves, reason to defend against oppression and discrimination. There will be people who will see them as advocates automatically before you open your mouth. So to a certain extent, I say, let's not concern ourselves too greatly with eradicating that perception because you can't. It's true that reporters might have their news antenna tuned to certain things because of their backgrounds, he said. For example, Bernie Sanders essentially conflating people of color and poverty. When you're white, you don't know what it's like to be living in a ghetto. You don't know what it's like to be poor. I heard it, and I heard it as a black man. Similarly, when Donald Trump says something about Mexicans or women or any other group, the black man is listening for bigotry, even if I am never included in the bigotry. I owe everybody the rigor of fact. And in both cases, what I owe to the candidates more than anything else is a question. What do you mean? If you ask that question and meet the standards of journalism in the resulting story, Keith says it isn't biased. 
even if people call it advocacy. It isn't my doing to label that advocacy. I don't accept the label unto itself. Journalists are advocates by definition. We advocate for children who are being harmed by the state system. We are not trying to find out the benefits of being harmed. We only have one point of view, and that is that it's wrong to hurt children. We are not disinterested in the outcome. That's advocacy by its purest definition. I understand that what people are afraid of is essentially the absence of journalism. And if we looked at it that way, then the question to the person of color is, are you being journalistic? And I think we owe all of us across race, ethnicity, and gender, we owe it to our audience to ask those questions. But let's make sure that that's the question we're asking and that we don't automatically assume that there is a direct correlation between my race and my ability to do my job. It might be understandable why that gets confusing, though, because as news organizations, our standard for what is and isn't biased can be influenced by whom we believe our audience to be. And we often seem to assume our audience is white because we often write stories that seem to explain minority communities. Like, for example, a lot of black parents have conversations with their kids about how to act around the police. And doing a story about that, you're kind of explaining that to white people because that's a common thing among black people. How do you feel about that dynamic? We have a hyper-educated audience in public radio. So we assume some stuff about being educated that's wrong, especially when it comes to areas of difference. So maybe I have to tell you the story of the talk that black parents have with their kids because of the universal nature of that for black parents and the general absence of that for a lot of other parents. I can't just say to talk and assume that everybody knows what I'm talking about because you don't. So to a certain extent, I owe my audience the least common denominator discussion. Where journalism can get better is right there at that moment. And here's what we can do. We can ask the question when we do the story on the talk, what's in it for the black parent? How do I tell them something that they don't know? How do I add a nuance to this story that they can talk about beyond saying, yeah, I know that? I'll give you an example. In America today, in, in discussions around Muslims, somewhere in America, there is going to be a story about the hijab, the covering that Muslim women wear. And that, that story can take any number of forms, right? But what if you did a story about the hijab? This story was done, so I'm talking about a, a, a newspaper story that I saw that speaks to a young Muslim woman who is trying to figure out where to buy the, uh, the array of hijabs that she would like to wear and is thinking about it in the fashion sense. We do a story for her in which we, we go on the search, we go on the exploration with her, and along the way, we're dropping in the information for the uninitiated and maybe there's some more information you will need contextually, but you go and get it. We're not going to give it all to you because she doesn't need it. What's the story that you can tell her that she doesn't know that also will give me, the person who is not Muslim, didn't grow up with it, had some questions about it, some information that will make it worth my while as well? That's when we are doing diversity well. This can get confusing, though. 
Let's look at a specific example. Anderson Cooper was in Orlando following the shooting at a gay nightclub there in June. He asked State Attorney General Pam Bondi a question that represented a sentiment he had heard in the gay community. And Cooper was widely criticized. This is media critic Howard Kurtz on Fox. Cooper grilled Florida's Republican Attorney General Pam Bondi for having argued in court against same-sex marriage. I talked to a lot of gay and lesbian people here yesterday who are, are not fans of yours and who said that they thought you were being a hypocrite. Do you really think you're a champion of the gay community? Uh, I, let me tell you. I, I took this up with Guy Benson, political editor of uh, townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. Do you think he was acting as more than just an aggressive journalist? Yeah, he seemed like an activist. In this circumstance, I thought the line of questioning for the Attorney General of Florida under the circumstances and given the context, it was a bizarre non sequitur and it seemed like he was browbeating her for really unrelated political thought crimes in her past. So Kurtz and his guest, who happened to be gay, are saying that Cooper's question was inappropriate because it didn't pertain to the current story. So is adding more context activism? I thought about that a lot this past year because of the very public national string of police-involved deaths of black men. Every story, each reporter had a choice of how much context to include. By and large, they chose not to mention the country's long and well-documented history of questionable police-involved deaths of black men. That context could have helped explain the reaction to the deaths in African-American communities. Part of that is that there's a lack of context in any story we do. So let's start that. Or it's not as, let me put it this way, that's kind of harsh, all right. There's not as much context as there ought to be in many of our ongoing stories. This is my friend Callie Crossley. She's a Boston radio host, an alum of ABC's 2020 show, and was a producer for Eyes on the Prize, the landmark documentary series about the civil rights movement that aired in the late 1980s. She says when cell phone video of police shootings started to come out, African Americans were able to tell their news directors, It's been happening. You just didn't know about it because you didn't understand what my lived experience was. How do you have that conversation in a newsroom where nine times out of ten, people refuse to accept your lived experience because it's not, quote, unquote, universal. If they say that's not what's happening, that's the universal experience. So what are you talking about? You're outside of the box. Every day, somebody is trying to make a choice about what's going to go on the air or in the newspaper or online. These are decisions. So one of the bigger issues has been who are the decision makers? They're mostly white. In radio newsrooms, for example, 8% of rank-and-file employees are minorities. And among news directors, 4% are minorities. That's according to a survey this summer by the Radio Television Digital News Association. So, by and large, if, say, a reporter of color wants to do a story they know about because of their lived experience, they're advocating for that story to a white person. Every time you go to have that conversation, you have to determine, is this a dollar fight or is this a penny fight? And sometimes it's a penny fight. So along the way, likely some of us have made decisions, all right, this is actually not a dollar fight. This is a $100 fight, and I'm going down on this one, and that means that hopefully somebody coming behind me will have an opportunity I did not have. But i got to say something here. I can't sit here and watch this. And that's what happens. I mean, I'd be surprised if you didn't talk to, I don't know, let's say 50 journalists of color who've been in the business longer than a year who've not had to have make that decision. 
and figure out, you know, how are they going to handle it? And I'll give you a good example. When I was at ABC, there was a story that aired, uh, ABC News, there was a story that aired on uh, World News Tonight, and it was about a prison in Iowa. And all of the people that they interviewed were black inmates. Now, we're in Iowa, okay? And so those of us who were journalists of color said, this is ridiculous. This is Iowa. Yes, people are shipped here from other places, but in the state of Iowa, the majority of people in that prison, I do, we do not believe were persons of color. Well, that turned out to be true. So then we said to, you know, the people who covered the story, do you understand what you're saying? Implicitly, if the only people that you interview are the black inmates who are, in fact, are the lesser population in the prison in Iowa. What does that say? That's not accurate. If part of the context that is left out impugns the accuracy of the story, then you have undermined the very basic tenet of journalism. So a context has to make the rest of the story accurate. The end. Diverse reporters can feel sort of pushed to play that watchdog or expert rule Callie's describing. This is Hari Srinivasan of the PBS NewsHour. I talked to him five days before the election. People of color in any newsroom have had that moment at a newsroom meeting where, <laughs> let's say you're me and you're the Indian American reporter that's sitting at the table and there's nobody else of South Asian descent around this decision-making forum and someone says something about something that's in the news. And so, oh, and overnight, uh, you know, India did this to Pakistan and all eyes just generally drift over in your direction. And you're like, what am I, the wire service for all things India-Pakistan overnight? Like what insight do you expect me to have? Right. So on the one hand, I'm like, hold on. You just racially profiled me collectively. You just think that I – at that point, I am the decider on whether this is important or not and whatever I say carries a disproportionate amount of weight. That's not really fair, right? But that's just the way life is. So is it my job to in some ways, shape or form like kind of stay up to date with major crises that are happening in India? Yes. Can I influence coverage? Yes. Just by being me, can I expose them to different events and different sub-communities that already exist? Yes. I think that our role is really not just to be advocates and carry a flag specifically for our ethnicity or for our gender, but really to think about all kinds of different communities that are around us that we don't particularly pay very much attention to. If I didn't exist, would those same ideas get to the table? Maybe not. In 2013, Hari defied the statistics and rose into the most prominent role possible, anchor. PBS asked him to host their new weekend news hour. I actually had almost left D.C. I had lined up an opportunity in a different city. Really, it was pretty close to sign on the dotted line when this opportunity kind of came out of the blue. And I was confident enough in my skills that it seemed like a natural next step to me. But, you know, I think it's one of those moments, especially in a journalist of color's life, where you have to seize the opportunity and you have to have the confidence and you have to have really the self-belief to go after it and say, you're right. It sounds like you're saying, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're saying that being a host of, you know, this stature takes a certain amount of self-confidence that perhaps doesn't come naturally to someone who grew up as a minority in this country. Well, I think that a lot of times, a lot of 
Asian Americans in general, perhaps Indian Americans specifically, we are instilled with a sense that it's all about the meritocracy. It's all about keeping your head down, not making waves, just do really well in school and you'll automatically get ahead. And I think, sadly, that's not always the way the world works. Sometimes there's a huge amount of luck involved. Sometimes there's a huge amount of chutzpah involved. And what you also see in almost any profession, in any job that you're in, you realize that sometimes you're working really, really hard and you see somebody else come by that's not working that hard, but they get right ahead, right past you. What happened? And you start to think, well, wait a minute, maybe it's because they're golfing with the boss or maybe it's because there's all these other things, right? So I, I think that by this point in my career, I just saw the moment and said, you know, not to be sort of Lin-Manuel Miranda, but, you know, not going to throw away my shot, right? It's you, you've got to take it. And, you know, that doesn't change how hard you have to work. And I think that I still feel, you know, there's always this gnawing sensation that perhaps doesn't exist in uh, some of my other colleagues, the back of their minds where, you know, you're just like, oh my gosh, I'm so lucky for this opportunity. Like, let me over-prepare. Let me, <laughs> let me know more and more and more than possible. And, I mean, I pinch myself when I'm co-anchoring with Judy Woodruff or Gwen Ifill, and I'm like, oh, my God, that's Judy Woodruff. Hari, by the way, is an immigrant born in India. And immigration, of course, was a huge issue in the presidential campaign. You know, what's been strange is watching people automatically lump you into the Democrat pile if you're an immigrant or the Republican pile if you're white or whatever. I mean, I think – I mean, my personal political views – don't align with either of the two major parties. So that said, when I'm automatically looked at as, oh, well, clearly you're, you must be with her because you're brown. And that means that you are against everything that Donald Trump says, too. I mean, I think you learn very quickly in conversations about politics. There's the people who you, whose minds you're never going to change. And all you have to do is open your Twitter feed to see that. It's a very, very quick and important lesson. Do not engage in troll wars with people who have lots more time on their hands than you do. It's not my job to prove that if somebody wants to just say, oh, gosh, you're an immigrant, you clearly have a bias. I don't think that there exists a halo over my head that allows me to be the most objective man in the world as if it's like the Dos Equis most interesting man in the world. It's the most objective man in the world, right? I don't, I don't think that that exists. So I think all we can strive to be is you know, fair and thorough and a- as much of a service to our audience as possible. It's, it's really been more difficult not being an Indian American covering this. It's been difficult just being a journalist who peddles facts for a living. I think that the challenges facing the career, the profession, the fourth estate have been far more daunting than any challenges that I have faced being a person of color in this profession. The candidate certainly doesn't help. I mean, he he certainly riles people up. His target has primarily been the press overall. So that's been harder to work. I mean, the access to the campaign has been much, much, much more difficult all the way through the campaign. My old colleague that I used to work with at ABC, Jake Tapper, early, I think mid-season, one of those interviews that he did where he literally just asked about 15 or 20 different times about Judge Curiel, at some point it became a conscious decision of his to just say, I'm only going to try to get the answer to this one question if that's all the time we have. 
I want to ask you about comments you made about the judge in the Trump sure, University sure. case. You said that you thought it was a conflict of interest that he was the judge because he's of Mexican heritage, even though he's from okay, Indiana. Yeah. I have had horrible rulings. I've been treated very unfairly by this judge. Now, this judge is of Mexican heritage. I'm building a wall. So no Mexican judge could ever be involved in a case well, that involves you? Uh, he's a member of a society where, you know, very pro-Mexico, and that's fine. It's all fine. But Except I think, that you're calling into question his heritage. I think he should recuse himself. Because and he's then Latino. Then you also say... But he's, Ameri Mexican, he's an American. Uh, he's of Mexican heritage. And he's very proud of it, as I am where I come but from. But he's my an parents. American. You keep talking about... Jake. It's a conflict Jake. of interest because of Mexico. I don't really want to litigate the case to. of Trump University. Because what if he was giving me fair rulings, I wouldn't say that. If you invoke his race as a reason why he can't do his job... I think that's why he's doing it. But is it not... If you are saying he can't do his job because of his race, is that not the definition of racism? No, I don't think so at all. No? No. no. He's proud of his heritage. I, I respect him for but that. But you're saying he can't do his job because of it. Uh, look, he's proud of his heritage, okay? He's a Mexican, and it's a wall between Mexico, not another country. But he's, not, my, he's not from Mexico. In my opinion... He's from Indiana. He is he's Mexican, Mexican heritage, and he's very proud of it. Right, it became kind of a news-making event. I think Jake is a solid journalist. I think he's a very hard worker. I don't think he's in the tank for anybody. So I, I don't – I think that there's a lot of journalists right now who are trying to do their best. I think that the journalists of color who are in this, I think it's probably hard to you know, see bigotry at some of these events and racism and neo-Nazi symbols and feel like this is a person or this is a movement that I want to get behind. The female journalists, frankly, who are in this – who have had to physically endure a lot of just obnoxious behavior from supporters, I think they have it a lot harder to try to maintain on a daily basis, keep saying, okay, guess what's happening to me personally should not affect how I cover this candidate. Since the election, lots of newsrooms have been reassessing their role, thinking about coverage in new ways, wondering what biased and unbiased means now. Everyone's getting ready for what we can't know. But we know it's coming, and we know, based on the last year, it will be confusing. Selfishly, it's really confusing for me. Otherhood looks at how the U.S. is becoming a multicultural country and how people are developing new identities. Is just focusing on those subjects biased now? I asked Maria Inejosa for some direction. She's head of the Futuro Media Group and host of Latino USA. I'm like everybody else, right? We are trying to figure this out. And I think that's the best signal of a great professional journalist is to have a thoughtful process on how to manage these situations. So I spend a lot of time talking with my staff. And my staff is incredibly diverse. The more diversity you have of opinion, of background experiences, the better journalists and journalism you're going to have. But it's interesting, Rupa, because, for example, my young colleagues in our newsrooms, they probably never had the experience that I did as a Mexican immigrant girl growing up on the south side of Chicago in 1960, I guess it would have been 1967, during the election, the campaign of George Wallace. And um, George Wallace was um, a very controversial candidate. He was from Georgia. And I just remember being really afraid of him because what I understood, I was six, seven years old, was that someone like him, a presidential candidate, did not like people like me and my best friend. I was Mexican. I was born in Mexico. My best friend was Jewish. 
And so we were walking home from school and making plans as to what basement we were going to hide in if he was elected. So I carry that experience like that's a real memory for me that that never I never forgot that as a journalist now today in a you know post Trump election world. I'm hearing stories of children feeling the same way. How do I approach that objectively as a journalist? It's more just the fact that I acknowledge that that was part of my own experience and something similar is happening today. And so how do I best use my experience to understand this dynamic today? And that's the best kind of journalism that I can do. Are you worried that people will think journalists who are immigrants are biased now? Sadly, Rupa, this is this is where, yeah, yeah, it makes me really sad, like really sad, like on the verge of tears, <laughs> kind of sad, which is kind of silly because I'm too old to be crying over this stuff. But 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 it, it, it yeah, it becomes really personal because it's like, you know what? And I really hate the way what I'm going to say is going to sound. But, you know, I'm old enough now that, you know, I can say certain things and just kind of like, all right, let the chips fall where they may. But the truth is, Rupa, and not in a way to self-aggrandize, but I have won like amazing amounts of awards. So, so lucky in that sense. The number of awards that I have won who are been have been named after white men, the Edward R. Murrow Award, the John Chancellor Award, the Robert F. Kennedy Award, the Studs Terkel Award, to name a few, the Peabody Award. It's like how many more awards do I or other journalists of color have to win before we are considered to be legit and to be recognized as being fair and unbiased journalists? And that means that we are doing our profession. And yet, the truth is, yes, over the past several, you know, since the election and leading up to, yes, that has come up again. It comes up in ugly ways, whether it's people on social media literally coming after me. It poses a very particular challenge to journalists of color in the United States of America and our allies. Because we will need our allies who are not journalists of color at our side when these kinds of accusations come. I have many sad moments over the last 18 months um, in terms of how journalists have covered this election, covered the Trump candidacy. But one that particularly stands out for me um, as a sad moment is when Jorge Ramos asked his question of then-candidate Donald Trump. I believe they were in Iowa and he was just trying to ask a question. Mr. Trump has a question about immigration. Uh, your immigration plan. Okay, who's uh, next? Yeah, please. Trump, Excuse me, sit down. You weren't called. Sit down. No, no, sit down. No, no, I'm a, sit down. Go ahead. I have the right to the no, you don't. You haven't been called. I have the, I have the right to the Go back to Univision. No journalist stood up and said, let him ask his question. He's a colleague of ours and he has every right and we will hold our questions because we believe he has a right. That moment of staying seated, I hope every single one of those journalists has a moment of reflection and pause and that they never let that happen again. Because I don't want to expect that it's going to get that way. I want to be really optimistic about our future, but I am calling very specifically on our on our non-journalist of, of color allies and, and colleagues to be hyper-vigilant. We will need them. 
And we will need as collectively as journalists of color to turn to each other and to find counsel and ways to approach this is in a way that is not emotional, that is um, completely professional, and that we understand that these challenges are ones that it is our moment in history to face them. What do you think journalists are supposed to do now when the president-elect tweets, for example, that a Somali refugee who attacked people at Ohio State should never have been in this country? Should news organizations report on that and the problems it implies, you know, that it blames a whole group of people for the actions of an individual? Or do you keep it out of the news in order to stop the spread of speech many people feel encourages intolerance? Well, I think that the Trump presidency really is posing a whole lot of fascinating issues for us because I think as critical and savvy journalists, I think we also don't like to be used as pawns, right? Like no, nobody likes to be used in that way. And certainly that's part of our profession is to understand when we are being used that way and to run away from that. So I think we as journalists have to start to wonder, does Donald Trump, does the presidency actually have a strategy around using Twitter to draw our eyes to what he is saying without any filter and saying extravagant things like, you know, people who burn the flag should, you know, lose their citizenship or be imprisoned. And then we as journalists just are so called to that, to clarify that. And then we do. And and in the meanwhile, was that a very strategic decision of the Trump administration to put our attention over here? While meanwhile, over here, contracts were being signed, deals were being made, people were being named, and we're not paying attention. Is a podcast or a story on diversity or inclusion inherently political now? Well, I would like to say no, but it is. I think I would be wrong. Yes, I think it will be perceived as political. It should not be a politicized topic, given that we're a country made up of immigrants. That is the core of our experience. And yet it is, and it has been. It is going to become political in a different way. Under this administration, under Jeff Sessions, it's complicated. I mean, to be honest with you, I I think a lot of us wish that we didn't have to cover this story. There are so many stories And yet, if the president-elect is saying that in the first 100 days there could be massive deportations, it, it is a political story. It's the first 100 days, but it becomes also a very human story. One out of every three Latinos is worried that someone that they know could be detained or deported. And so it becomes a very American story, a very human story. Um, because these, again, these are not people who just arrived to this country two months ago. Those are not the people who are being targeted or who are being deported. What's going to happen is, you know, little Juan won't be in school the next day. And your kids are going to come to school and say, hey, where's my best friend Juan? And it's going to be, he's gone. <laughs> That's not political. That is now an American story. And so as journalists, we're going to have to come at it with a tremendous amount of intelligence in terms of covering it as a political story, but also not forgetting our core of humanity, and also due process. Basic in this story, due process. The truth is, is that as a, as a Mexican immigrant, female journalist, and then I like to joke, flat-chested, I'm five things that the president-elect does not like. It doesn't feel good. So, you know, I, I'm trying not to take things personally. But I will tell you that, you know, I'm working out harder than ever because that's really good for our mental health and our emotional health. And um, and then I started meditating. And so now I'm kind of like really committed to it. 
and I never thought. I was like, ah, meditation, who has the time? It's something that I think that many journalists of color could really benefit from. It will help us um, because we need to be centered and calm in the midst of, of possible storms that are coming and possible amazing sunrises too. Just personally, I've been worried about censoring myself. Have you thought about that? I worry a lot about self-censorship because, you know, that's the last thing you want. And and I, I've worked in newsrooms where there was fear. The fear in those newsrooms was because people were getting laid off. And so, you know, you didn't want to tick off your boss because layoffs were coming. And what that does to a journalist is that it makes you fight less for the story or the idea that you really believe in which is at the core of who you are as a journalist, right, is your passion for doing a particular story. And I saw that happen. And I remember feeling way back when, like, wow, the worst thing that can happen is for us to have a newsroom full of scared journalists, journalists who are censoring themselves in order to not ruffle feathers. And that was in the context of not wanting to lose their jobs because of layoffs. Now, if you amplify that to what's happening now, I am sure that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of journalists of color who have already self-censored, who have considered it, who have changed a line, a word, perhaps out of a level of self-criticism to say, I need to do better. I'm being hyper-vigilant to make sure that, you know, that I am not in any way biased because I want to be fair. But I think that sometimes what happens is that you do go overboard and you just say, I'm not going to put that sentences in. I'm not going to I'm not going to call that person. I'm not going to do that interview. And it becomes a very slippery slope. So the right thing is to be hypervigilant and, again, to speak to fellow colleagues that we can trust to just say, what do you think? We, want, we just want to be the best journalists that we can be. That's got to be the bottom line. We've got to continue to kind of focus down in on what we do, what the role of a journalist is, and do that well. Now, Rupa... As you know, there are two ways of looking at the role of a journalist. One of them is that we simply document the history. We are not stenographers. And the other one is that we are helping to interpret what is happening within a larger global and historical context. And I think that this is where it gets challenging because as journalists, we never want to be a part of the story. As journalists of color, we are a part of the story. As I close this episode, we are still mourning PBS NewsHour anchor Gwen Ifill. She died six days after the election. Because of Gwen Ifill, I and a lot of other girls grew up thinking it was normal for the daughter of Caribbean immigrants to be a tough reporter, a national nightly news anchor, or the host of a vice presidential debate. Being that role model was probably a lot of pressure. But Gwen Ifill made dignity, integrity, and class look natural. When she felt she had to, she took a stand. In 2007, she rebuked radio host Don Imus for using a racial slur, writing in the New York Times, quote, and this is kind of a long quote, sorry, 
Every time a young black girl shyly approaches me for an autograph or writes or calls or stops me on the street to ask how she can become a journalist, I feel an enormous responsibility. It's more than simply being a role model. I know I have to be a voice for them as well. So here's what this voice has to say for people who cannot grasp the notion of picking on people their own size. This country will only flourish once we consistently learn to applaud and encourage the young people who have to work harder just to achieve balance on the unequal playing field, unquote. Gwen Eiffel taught me to be, above all, a good person. So as I and everyone else in mainstream media try to figure out how to be responsible journalists in this new era, maybe that's what we should keep in mind. Above all, be trustworthy. Before I say goodbye, a quick note on another podcast you might want to try. Offshore, a podcast from Honolulu, Civil Beat, and PRX that just wrapped its first season. The show tells stories about the side of Hawaii most tourists never see. Season one examines Hawaii's struggle to come to grips with race and power as the most multicultural state in the country. Here are the stories of two local killings 80 years apart whose simmering tensions have never gone away. Subscribe in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, that's it for this episode. Send me your thoughts on Twitter at Rupa Shinoy or talk to me on Otherhood's Facebook page. Thanks a lot for listening. I'm Rupa Shinoy, and this has been Otherhood from PRI. <laughs>